I want to be my client's first phone call if it has to do with the dollar, whether or not it's with us, whether or not we'll earn a fee off of it. I want to be that person that they call. In becoming a trusted advisor, you really are striving to perfect that client experience, whether it's an onboarding, a second meeting, or a 100th meeting. 93% of the time after having an initial meeting of roughly 90 minutes with a prospect that you've never met before, they will agree to let you manage 100% of their investable assets. How the hell do you do that? You start with a very deep discovery, which to me is just asking the right open-ended question. Get the client to speak most of the time and we listen and we take a ton of notes. I can't remember the last time that I didn't finish a meeting with someone that didn't become a client. His entire process with his team works extremely well because it's buttoned up and it's repeatable and, and they do that every single day. Getting rid of clients is hard and you feel that you're giving away revenue even when it's a dollar. It was probably the most rewarding process at the end of the day. And even now, I could certainly reduce that number of households I have probably by 15 to 20% and not hurt my revenue. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. In addition to industry trends, you will hear our guests provide their perspectives on the evolving strategic initiatives that are driving success and enabling our channel to better compete in the broader financial services industry. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hello and welcome to BISA Trend Watch. I'm Scott Stathis. I will be your co-host along with Bob Mattel. And this month, we will continue a topic we initiated last month, where we explored the concept of being a trusted advisor. So in our opinion, all advisors should strive to be trusted advisors. But how do you know when you've accomplished that? How do you know when you've arrived? What does it mean to be a trusted advisor? So we've assembled an impressive panel to discuss this. They will introduce themselves in a moment. But first, let me pass it to Bob so he can introduce himself. Bob? Well, thanks, Scott. And hello, everyone. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-host of this podcast. And let me welcome you to this, which I believe is our 24th edition of the BISA Industry Trend Watch, and also the second of our Hazy Hot Humid Summer Series. As Scott said, we have another great panel with us today, but before we meet them, let me remind you to visit bisanet.org for all things BISA, especially the upcoming Regulatory and Compliance Summit in Washington, D.C., November 14th and 15th. We're all waiting to go to that compliance time. So sit back get a cold drink, and let's meet our panel. Let's start with Robert. Hello, everyone. Rob Cosentino with Webster Investments. Been there about 26 years, and I'm over in Rocky Hill, Connecticut. Where it's always hazy, hot, and humid again. No matter where it you is, are in the country, it seems to be that way. 
It is right now. Texas, because Texas is either really hot or really wet right now. <laughs> it's crazy out there. Let's go to South Carolina and meet Matt. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me. My name is Matt Griffin. I'm with Stewart Concepts in Rock Hill, South Carolina. We're affiliated with Family Trust Federal Credit Union, small credit union in South Carolina, about 400 million in deposits. Program consists of two advisors and three admins. Very much a fee-based practice. We're about 160 million AUM, roughly 91% fee-based. And we're happy to be back on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Appreciate your participation. Let's go back over to the New England area and Rhode Island in particular and meet Dan the man. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it. As we said there, Dan Pellegrino, sales manager for Webster Bank, uh, Webster Investments. We have 80 advisors across a four-state footprint, New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. We've got 28 licensed bank employees that are referral only. We've got approximately $7 billion in assets under management with 47000 in annualized revenues, which equates to about 587000 per advisor team, which is a number that I'm very proud of. So glad to be here. Thank you. All right. So let's dig in and let's get this party started, Scott. All right. So just for clarification's sake, so Rob is a financial advisor, right? Dan is a manager. Matt, you're an advisor, but you're also a manager. So you're kind of a hybrid. So this will make for some interesting texture and views in this discussion. So we're going to start with a high level question that I'd like each of you to answer. Dan, maybe you can kick us off and then we'll pass it around. So the question is, how would you define what it means to be a trusted advisor? Dan? Yeah, I think the trusted advisor is a person who guides you in developing and maintaining your personal plan. My team and I have focused a lot of energy over the past two or three years to make financial planning the foundation of our process. I want my team focused on the plan. Short-term performance fees, et cetera, are all important. And they need to be a part of our conversations, but they shouldn't monopolize conversations. Our client reviews, in my opinion, should be laser beam focused on really two things. Number one, listening to the needs, wants, and desires of our best clients. And number two, what are we doing to meet your plan? Are we on track? What tweaks do we need to make in order to keep us on track? Or are we exactly where we need to be at this moment in time? So in my opinion, it's really all about maintaining and developing personalized plan for each of our top clients. Okay. Thank you for that. So Matt, do you have a similar view and some additional thoughts in that regard? Actually, very similar. I'm reminded of a story when I thought about this term trusted advisor. We recently were sponsoring a charity golf tournament. And as we're riding around in the cart, greeting everyone saying hello, someone asked about the name of our firm, Steward Concepts. They said, you know, what the heck do you guys do? What, what do you do? And my chief of staff immediately quit back and she said, we do all things money. And the man said, well, I like money. What does that really mean? And she said, well, of course, we can do the asset management. We can do the financial planning. We can do the custody of the assets. And we earn fees off of that, of course. However, we can also answer things like, if you're looking to sell your business, what's the best way to go about it? Should you take the lump sum on the pension or should you take the monthly amount? Should you buy or lease your next vehicle? Should you? She named about six or eight, 10 things that have nothing to do with assets that we would custody and we wouldn't even earn a fee on them. And the person just kind of sat there, you know, in awe. And he said, wow, that really is all things money. So to me, to be a trusted advisor, I want to be my client's first phone call. If it has to do with the dollar, whether or not it's with us, whether or not we'll earn a fee off of it. I want to be that person and that firm that they call. That's the first thing. And then to Dan's point about financial planning, I'm obsessed with the implementation of the plan. Because if we do a comprehensive plan and we have 15 recommendations, maybe only six or eight are within our control, right? If the assets are with us, we can control that. We can't control whether or not the client makes that appointment with their estate planning attorney and goes and has their wills revised or whether or not they change a beneficiary on their 401k. We can't control that. So we are obsessed with the implementation of a good plan, because I think that's where a lot of times the ball is dropped. So it's interesting because that was a very comprehensive description of what you do to help your clients manage their money. The implication is that you're doing things with illiquid assets, 
based on the current structure of most of the advisors out there, you would not get compensated for that. So it has me wondering, do you also have a fee-for-service model? Have you gone there yet or not yet? We have not yet, although we have begun discussing this with some of our clients. They're all comfortable with it. However, the one thing that we have been able to do, because we don't have a fee-for-service model yet, we've actually raised some of the asset management fees in the last two to three years to compensate our team for some of those ancillary services. So we'll have clients say, listen, I'm paying the fee on my account, but I've always paid that. I feel like I need to pay something additional for all this extra work. And we'll say, well, is it okay with you if we bump your fee up by 15 basis points? Sure. Send me the form. So we've been able to get compensated additionally through that. Well, when clients say, yeah, go ahead and charge me more, I'd say you're probably a trusted advisor, just guessing. <laughs> we, That's good. we hope so. That's good stuff. And Matt, you know me well enough to know that I'm going to dig in a lot deeper with you in that regard. But Rob, let me pass it to you to get your thoughts on what it means to be a trusted advisor. Thanks, guys. It's going to be hard to add on top of everything else that's been said, but I agree with Matt. I'm also obsessed with the implementation of the plan. Existing clients, we are constantly going back and trying to implement and get a plan where we don't have one. New clients, we're not even taking them on without a plan. I think it's more important than ever to form some form of strategic partnership with a client, provide unbiased advice and help for anything, help them implement something simple to something complex, guide them, find holes, and offer advice where there are holes. And like Matt said, also, if they take that advice, they take it. If they don't, they don't. But even, even some of the most savvy people that I've met out there that become clients are missing things. And if they take the time and do the process of a plan and sit down and focus and listen, and we listen, we can often show them things they can do to improve their financial situation, whether they do that or not is up to them. Yeah. So you all talked about planning, which is incredibly important, obviously. And you know the term trusted advisor, obviously the key word there is trust, right? And so engendering trust is incredibly important. Our listeners have heard me say a hundred times that in my view, if you're a trusted advisor, you're managing the overwhelming majority of your clients' investable assets. And in cases like Matt's, non-investable assets as well, right? We have a lot of advisors in the bank channel that if you really do an analysis of wallet share, you'll realize they're not managing the majority of their clients' assets. So they're what I call an afterthought, right? They're not a trusted advisor. So based on the definitions that you all just described, let's dig in even deeper and see what it takes to be in a mm -hmm. position where you are managing 100% or as close as possible to your client's investable assets, at least their investable assets, right? You, you can even go beyond that. And before we dig into that, because I have a question specifically on that, I want to pass it back to Bob for the next related question. So Bob, take it away. Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. And great conversation. And if you type in trusted advisor into Google, it'll say, you know, what makes a great trusted advisor? And it says the ability to listen. And that really brings it down right there. It's listening and not talking, but it's listening. A trusted advisor listens carefully to what clients say and don't say. Because there's a lot of things that they don't say that you need to really talk to them about. But the next question, how do you become this trusted advisor? And if you were to put a game plan together to do so, what would be the priorities? Rob, let's start with you. Thanks, guys. I'm going to circle back a little bit to question one and start off by saying, do a plan. That process gets you really close to your client. It's between all the questions, you learn a lot about family, you take notes, you listen, provide input, but that whole process really helps become a trusted advisor. It allows you to offer advice that I think our clients take much more seriously because there's been a lot of thoughtful and impactful design and implementation and a process that shows that we've taken the time to try and help the client the best we can and offer them advice. Another thing I think that's important is to get closer to your clients is I do a lot of lunches, as Dan would be able to tell. 
But those are great. We're not talking about business. We walk next door. We're lucky enough to have a restaurant. I am right next door. I walk over there. It's kind of nice. It's, it's like being an old mob. Everybody knows me over there. Smiles, takes me to the seat. But it really, the client really appreciates that. You go in there, you don't talk business. I learn a lot about the clients. I let them talk. I think that's important because the more your client has rapport and a connection with you, the more you're going to get from them and the more you can be able to help them. Absolutely. It's almost like being a life coach when you get into those situations. It is. Hearing a lot of that over a lot of these calls that we've been doing, a lot of our, uh, our podcasts is once you start talking about the financial stuff, and I think it was Matthew that said even things that anything to do with money and not it's not all assets under right. management. There's other things there. And when you look at about the protection side of the equation, there's so much over there as well. But it's like a life coach, right? Yeah. I think maybe I should or Dan should offer life coach courses. <laughs> well, sure. And that gets to know the family and, you know, related questions to that. We'll get to that later. But Dan, do you have some thoughts on this whole life coach and trusted advisor? I love the life coach. That's fantastic. And I think Rob hit the nail on the head. Really begins, uh, and not to reiterate the same things we kind of already talked about, but it begins with planning. And I think the more clients that we can have a financial plan start of a conversation with, the better off that relationship is, the better off that client experience is, especially during the onboarding process. At Webster, what we've done to encourage that, as I had mentioned, we've been working on over the last couple of years, is we've centralized a lot of our module-based plans, whether it be retirement plans or higher education plans or insurance plans, with those modular pieces, they're kind of partial plans. They're not the full robust plan that Rob does for a lot of his top clients, but it allows our advisors to get off on the right foot. Even if it's a small, simple plan that we're running for them, and it's just that module, it doesn't have to be necessarily a full-blown financial plan, which not everybody necessarily needs right out of the gates, right? It might be somebody a young family that's just getting started out and they don't have a whole heck of a lot to get started with, but they definitely need a plan. They're not 10 IRAs deep and two 401ks and tons of life insurance and all that. They may be just starting that out. And in that, we need to develop what it is that their next steps need to be. What do we need them to do first? And it's not as simple as just saying, we're going to start by opening up an IRA. That may be the case. And if they're able to do that, maybe there's a child on the way and we need to talk about insurance. And that might be the most important thing for them. But becoming that trusted advisor has to begin with that onboarding process that's clean and crisp, and it needs to be consistent and repeatable. And with that, that's why I've impressed upon my folks so deeply over the last couple of years that the importance of planning and offered all of these different solutions for them. And we made it really, really easy for them to fill out a one-pager fact finder and submit it to the back office team. And it just makes the whole process cleaner for them and more efficient for them. And it makes a really great, again, as I said, a client experience. And that's really what we're striving for. And I think that's what a trusted advisor, in becoming a trusted advisor, you really are striving to perfect. I know we're never going to be perfect, but trying to perfect that client experience, whether it's an onboarding, a second meeting, or a 100th meeting. They all have to have that experience, like Rob outlined with taking them to lunch. Nothing fancy. But the reality of it is that's getting to know your client better than anything else you can possibly do, in my opinion, is spending that quality time and learning about their children, their grandchildren some, even some great-grandchildren. So those are some fantastic best practices from Rob. So that's what I would say. And to all our listeners out there, hear that real loud and clear. I think we're talking, being obsessed with financial planning is what we're really talking about. And having a process that is repeatable and consistent. Absolutely. So Matt, I knew you've been listening to this. So if I go back and repeat the question, how do you become a trusted advisor? And if you were to put a game plan together to do so, what would the priorities be and how do you also end up being a life coach on top of it? <laughs> so first of all, I think there are some basic requirements to becoming a trusted advisor, you know, whether that's having a certain level of expertise, having a certain level of experience, designations, things like that. But then after that, I think it all boils down to, as Rob and Dan both said, you start with a very deep discovery, which to me is just asking the right open-ended questions get the client, get the prospect to speak most of the time. And we listen and we take a ton of notes. So after that, it becomes a communication game, meaning the ability to relate to people and to explain to them in real world terms, why you're recommending exactly what you're recommending. I had a conversation today over lunch with my other advisor about a concept called NUA, net unrealized appreciation. And I thought to myself after the conversation, how many pieces of jargon were in this conversation? 
basis, ordinary income, cap gains tax, things like that. And I thought if a client was sitting there, they would have no idea what we're talking about. The people that we deal with don't know what basis means unless I explain it to them, right? So I take pride in the fact that after they leave the meeting, that first meeting, which most of the time is the only meeting, after they leave that meeting and they say, not only do I understand what you're recommending, I could actually go home and explain this to a spouse. I could go home and explain this to a neighbor because you spoke in very real world terms. You didn't have to talk way over my head and try to sound smart. And for me, that's how we become a trusted advisor because then they know we're not trying to hide anything. We're not trying to pull the wool over their eyes in any way. We speak like they speak. And if I had a penny for every time someone left a meeting and said, I've had people explain that to me before, but I've never understood it the way that I do after you explained it. I probably would be retired and living in France riding my bike right now. So that's kind of the, uh, to me, the communication piece and the lack of jargon is, I think, really, if I were to advise a young advisor today, how do you become a trusted advisor? Work on your communication skills, which to me covers the discovery process, ask great questions, and then be able to relate to them where they are on their knowledge base. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And what you brought out of that conversation just now also reinforces the fact that that communication process helps you in the long run, especially when they go back home. I was a branch manager in a retail branch years ago, and I don't know how many times back in the 80s and 90s I was involved with, okay, how do we unwind this transaction? Because the advisor wasn't completely clear. We are way beyond that now, but do it once. And you're not only getting that credibility when they can actually translate what you've said, but also bring it and translate it back home to the kids as well, because those kids are going to be very important in your practice down the road. They're either going to continue you in employment or fire you as an advisor, and you don't want to get fired as an advisor. So with that, trusted moderator and pass it over to Scott to stop talking. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Bob. So I'm going to, Matt, I want to keep you on point here and ask you a question, but let me, let me see if I can effectively summarize what I've heard so far. So one of the key elements of being a trusted advisor is the client experience, right? The client experience is created by your process if you're an advisor. Our listeners have heard me say many times before that your process is the only product you have, right? You don't have any other product. Your product is your process because all your investment vehicles are somebody else's product. So you better obsess over your process and your process has to be so good that your clients and prospects leave with a wow reaction. This person really knows what they're doing. This person asks the right questions. This person is professional. This person has my back, et cetera, right? That's all built into your process. Now, my opinion is the most important part of your process is not necessarily planning. It's what comes before planning. It's the discovery part. Because if you do not do a good job with discovery, you're not going to do a good job with planning. So it all starts with discovery. Again, our listeners have heard me say this many times before. My opinion is that most of the advisors out there don't spend enough time perfecting their discovery process, then perfecting it again, then perfecting it again, right? You can never perfect that too much. That is the most important thing that you have to do. And clarity in communications, as Matt said, I think is incredibly important as well. So all that said, the reason, Matt, why I want to pivot it back to you is that, I mean, you and I have had several meetings in person. You've been on a podcast before. And one of the things that I have been amazingly impressed with, with you, is that you keep statistics on your first meetings with your clients. And you tell me if I have this right or not, but you've said that in the past, 93% of the time after having an initial meeting of roughly 90 minutes with a prospect that you've never met before, 93% of the time, they will agree to let you manage 100% of their investable assets. And you track that. So do I have that right? Is it still a case? And how the hell do you do that? <laughs> it is correct. This year thus far, we're 89%. So we're having a bad year so far this year. But it is roughly 9 out of 10. So we're 89%. I went and counted it earlier today and how many misses we've had on the year. We can count them on one hand. So how do we do it? When I was in the wirehouse, Scott, we had a three appointment process. And the process, the first one was all discovery. Second one was essentially a proposal or slash plan. Third one was to sign paperwork. And we, once we did a study and we asked every client that we had, at which meeting of those three did you decide to do business with us? And 87% of the clients came back and said, I knew at the first meeting I was going to hire you. 
I knew at the first meeting, you were going to, no matter what you said, unless you insulted my mother in some way or something, that first meeting, I was going to be a client. So then I thought, well, then why am I doing the other two meetings? So this happened this week. A gentleman came in, just inherited $500,000. We talked for, this one might've been almost two hours, but I did the discovery process. He didn't have a financial planning need. If it's a, if it's a very advanced plan, Scott, it does involve a second meeting. But this gentleman did not need a financial plan. And I talked to him. I actually anti-sold him. I said, listen, if I were you, you don't have an advisor, I would go speak to four or five other people, make sure you have a good rapport. And he said, no, I like you. I like the way you communicate. I'm ready to go. He said, I, how do I get the money here? Do I just write a check or what do I do? And I go into my assistant and I say, he's ready to open an account. And she says, how much? And she thinks I'm going to say 50 grand. I'm like, it's like $575,000. And she just looks at me every time. And so this happened this week. So again, to reiterate, it's about 89% year to date. And if it involves an advanced plan, there does have to be a separate meeting because that first one is all discovery. But if there's not an advanced planning need and they walk in, no matter how big the dollars, they go from stranger to client 90% of the time. That still blows me away. And the discovery process is what you would point to as the key differentiator, right? Yes, sir. It's not even, for me, it's not even close. I love that. Rob, I want to get your thoughts on that because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm very impressed with that. So what are your thoughts? That is impressive. I don't track my stats. Maybe I'll start. Maybe Matt can send me over a spreadsheet. But I can't. You guys can have a competition. We'll track you online and stuff and we'll report to our audience. That'd be fun. (laughs) it, it, It would probably be fun. I know that I've been around longer than Matt has probably in this business, unless he's just one of those guys that looks super young and he's older. But years ago, it was always a one closed deal, especially in a bank. Now, I don't track that stat. I almost never close on the first deal, but I can't remember the last time that I didn't finish a meeting with someone that didn't become a client. If I know I'm not going to be the right person for them, I usually will end that meeting, thank them. The way at Webster it works, I have a junior guy on my team who helps a lot with the planning and other parts, but I might walk that client out to him and say, this might be the right person for you. But typically, if they get in front of me, they're usually the right person to be in front of me. And we usually end up with a client, but I'm not even close to 89. In the first meeting, I, I might nowadays, I might be 15%. Most of it is second meeting, small presentation in people. But I bet you if I asked, I think Matt made a really great point. I bet you if I asked those clients when they decided, they decided in the first meeting or they wouldn't come back. I bet you're right. Absolutely. Impressions. That, and that is an interesting point, right? And good for whatever wirehouse you were with. Yeah doing that survey because that's eye-opening, right? So that's cool. It is. Yeah. Uh, so awesome. Dan, any, any follow-on Congrats. thoughts to this question? Yeah, that's a very impressive numbers. And I would say that the majority of our folks are a multi-meeting process. We have, as Rob made a perfect point in the banks, you know, moved away from, thankfully, away from a transactional environment where we were just kind of hawking annuities years ago to really a consultative uh, approach, really, and the process that I outlined early on. And I'm glad we have taken that leap because we've established a client base that is extremely sticky, right? That's going to be with us for the long haul. And, and I, they believe in us. They believe in our process. And that's why our retention rates are so strong. I don't know what Rob's exact number, but I bet his retention rate is near 95 plus percent over a long period of time. So all, his entire process with his team works extremely well because he's buttoned up. And again, it's repeatable and they do that every single day. So great statistics though. Very encouraging. That's uh, it's impressive stuff. All right. Well, so Bob, you have a question that kind of digs into the metrics of being a trusted advisor of sorts, right? Exactly. Because, you know, and, and Dan just alluded to it, we've moved away from transactional type clients. We have trusted advisors now, but it's a whole different way of understanding what a book of business looks like from a trusted advisor. And it's not an easy question. And the answer is going to be depends. But once you are a trusted advisor, What's the right number of clients? And I know that's a tough question because they're all over the map. It depends on a lot of different factors. But years ago, five, 600 clients was, was kind of normal for a branch-based FA. I know it's different, and that's because we've gotten out of the transactional because it was a different business. We went from brokerage to investment to financial services to wealth management. So a trusted advisor, Dan, 
What is a number? Is there a number? It's a tough question, but it's a good question. And it's one that we've contemplated a lot over a number of years. And I've, we've all seen studies that attempt to assign a number of clients a successful advisor or a trusted advisor in this instance should have. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it really is dependent. And I think it's team dependent. It's geographic dependent in some cases as well. For example, I have some teams that are very efficiently running with two or 300 households. They are generally higher balanced households. I'm thinking about some of my reps in Boston, for example, and some of those metro areas, but their needs are a lot more robust, right? Then I have some other teams that have 500 or more households, but they have smaller household balances. And, and some of that might be a little more on the transactional side that, that we alluded to, but still trying to move towards consultative. A lot of their needs are slightly less complex in many instances. Part of it really, when we're managing these teams, is to really get them to see the light in how they manage their practice overall. For example, you know, a number of years ago, six or seven years ago, when we established our second story program, which Rob is a part of, which we call Wealth Consultants, we initially asked them to go from, in some instances, it was a crazy number, you know, 1,400, 1,600 clients down to 500. And it, that was a little bit of a pain point. It was a tough Band-Aid to pull. And a lot of them had some trouble doing it, but they all did. And what's happened now over the past several years is we've had several of them come back to me and say they want to make further cuts. They're ready to go even smaller because they've recognized that less definitely can be more. And they're building out wallet share with those best clients. And while Rob and others are bringing on new clients, they're really only bringing on new clients that look like their very best clients. And that's really a model that I love to promote. And it does make a lot of sense in many instances to have a junior in Rob's situation, as he had said earlier, because not everything's going to be a perfect fit to work with Rob so that he can spend his quality time with the right people. And that's all about modeling and preparing the right resources for every single team so that it's customized for every single team. So that's the best non-answer I can give you. Well, that, and it makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of components that you can really break down out of that. And let me just ask you a follow-up too. We're two years, I'm going to say we're two years out of the pandemic because I'm tired of hearing it. We're in the endemic. But technology has definitely helped dig in deeper, I guess, and help manage the larger books, right? Yeah, there's no question it has. And, and I could speak directly to how technology has taken hold and benefited our practices in a huge way. We're fortunate enough to have one centralized financial consultant that is completely remote. As a matter of fact, she lives down south, not even in our footprint, but she's a financial consultant that takes on a lot of the, maybe some of the smaller accounts or transactional accounts. She's worked for our customer call center. And she, by a long shot, has done more financial plans year to date, triple the next person. So the success, her success is driven by financial plans and she's able to do them all remotely. Doesn't meet anybody in person. Yeah. So her success year over year, and I'll just give you a percentage, She's, her revenue numbers are up 50, 60% year over year, and that's all remote. So it's working. It's working in a big way, and, and the field still utilizes it in, in some instances where they may have some clients that spend the majority of their time down in Florida or down south for the winter, especially. We're still operating our business as if there's a pandemic in some instances, but without having the need to be. So technology has come a long way, for sure. A lot of so learning. as we said at the onset, it depends. Matt, how does it depends? in your organization? <laughs> so, so this is a question we, we wrestle with a good bit, not internally, but as we hear consultants and or we read articles, talk to folks in the industry. I think the number that's pretty commonly floated is between 250 and 300 households per advisor. We are running about 400 households per advisor here right now. But I think it also depends, to Dan's point, it also depends on the type of practice, meaning if you're just a relationship manager and you're doing the plan and you're not involved in day-to-day -day asset management and the buying and the selling and that sort of thing, you probably can handle more households than if you're pulling the trigger, managing portfolios and all of that on top of that. Obviously, if you have more transactional clients, you probably can manage more households. If you have more high net worth clients, they're going to require more time, they're harder work, you need fewer households, they need to be touched more. Technology helps a lot. One of the things that we do is we do virtual calls, just like this one that we're on, and we'll host multiple clients on those calls and for very basic things, market updates, year-to-date market performance, what are our thoughts on the election, things like that that every client would want to hear. And that does reduce our need to touch those clients 
so many times per year because they feel like they've seen us. Uh, we also do seminars where, where we invite our clients in and just in a group format, we'll cover very topical things, what's going on. And again, that means I might not have to call them four times a year individually from me to them because they saw us at a seminar, they attended a team's meeting or whatnot. And then lastly, the other way we do it is through our team. I have very good team members. And so what happens is they may only speak to me once a year. In fact, I've had people sit in for their annual meeting and they say, well, the last time I talked to you, I was sitting in this same chair last December, a year ago. And I said, well, no offense, Sally, but it's a fully discretionary portfolio. My team has checked in with you six times this year. Nothing's changed financially. Do you want me to call and ask about your grandson's golf swing or you know, how that vacation in Tahiti was or what, what do you want me to say? And she, yeah, good point, right? I don't necessarily need to hear from you that often. For me, I think that number is probably in the threes, 300 to 350 if you're stretching it. But I've been told that my opinion is too high on this. And I think there are other people that are smarter in the industry than me. So, And again, you bring up a lot of good points. And, and part of that is almost having a service level agreement with your client at the front end of the process. I'm going to have one video chat with you. We're going to have you in a seminar. We're going to do an annual plan review. And we're going to do something else. And maybe right. it's that communication back and forth between you and the client. Right. And there are times, <laughs> there are times where we'll sign up a client and I'll say, listen, we have a standard service model, but nobody is standard. So if you would like more frequent contact than this, let me know. If you would like less frequent contact, let me know, because my default is going to be, if you need something, call me. My default is not going to be to knock on your door every other week or to call you three times a quarter. That's not going to be my default because we're going to get very granular. Well, in the last quarter, your portfolio is up or down X amount and the call is going to take four minutes. Do you have any other questions? No. It's kind of a waste of your time, Ted, if you want to do it that way. So we will ask the client what they prefer. And sometimes, Robert, we get answers like, oh, I don't have that high of expectations. I just expect you know monthly phone calls and a face-to-face -face meeting every quarter. And I need you to come to my office. And then we say, okay, you probably should have a lot of zeros in this relationship if you need that much service. And we're open and authentic and honest enough to just say that to them. And they kind of chuckle and I say, I'm dead serious. I'm not meeting with you six times face-to-face, -face, period. And then no one's ever told me that before. Well, then maybe we're not a good fit for you. And then they say, oh, okay. And so we kind of have this back and forth situation. But we do ask the client how often they want to be touched, if you will. And we make sure we're in the same zip code with that idea as they are. <laughs> I, like the, I like the zip code reference. Hey, Rob, how many clients do you have that have to walk upstairs to see you? <laughs> uh, none. <laughs> I would say, I think Matt's point, just to go back to Matt for a second, is, makes me laugh because the people that want that attention never have that many zeros. They have no Amen. zeros often. <laughs> and they will come in and ask why their dividend was different this month in the PIMCO income fund than last month. And those are the clients we can do without. I'm not going to add much to this part of the conversation, except that to piggyback Dan a little bit is we went through that process of going to the second story upstairs. And it was hard in the beginning, especially uh, Dan will tell you, I've been here a long time. There's a few other fellows that have been here a long time and getting rid of clients is hard. And you feel that you're giving away revenue, even when it's a dollar and being a guy that likes every penny, it was hard, but it was probably the most rewarding process at the end of the day. And even now, I know we're going to get into this, I think in the next question, but I could certainly reduce that number of households. I have probably by 15 to 20%. And Dan would be able to tell you more specifically because he looks at that stuff more than I do, but probably easy and not hurt my revenue. Now, let me ask somebody else the same question because he does a lot of research in this particular area. Scott. <laughs> In, in, in so, your work in the industry, in the research world, what is the number that you're seeing? <laughs> well, I'll give you a real interesting way to look at this, right? So, of course, the answer is it depends. And part of what it depends on significantly is how you scale yourself with assistants, admins, whatever it is that you scale yourself, right? But if you don't scale yourself, here's a very simple way to look at it. And tell me if you guys agree with this. My, my assumption is if you're doing your job with your clients, that it takes on average about eight hours per year 
per client to service them appropriately. And that's, that's a combination of in-person meetings, meeting prep, phone time, account maintenance, whatever it is. So my estimation is about eight hours per year per client, right? You agree that that might be a rough, roughly accurate estimation? Because then you have the basis for a calculation. So how do you calculate that? Well, let's say you work an average of five days a week, 50 weeks a year. So you take two weeks vacation. So then you have 250 days that you work per year. Let's say you work nine hours per day. So you have 2,250 hours of working time. Back out a third of that, because not everything you do is client-facing. You have to run your business. You have training sessions. You have continuing education. You have meetings with, I mean, you get it, right? So you have to back out about a third of that time. And you're left with about 1,500 hours to do client-oriented work. Now you have simple math. Divide eight into 1,500. It's actually 1,570.5 if you want to be exact. Do the math. You have 188 clients you can serve if you're not leveraged. 188, okay? So if you leverage yourself and you're down to, let's say, six hours per client because you're using an admin, that number goes to 251. If you're down to four hours per client, it goes to 377 clients. So do the math, right? It's an interesting way to look at it. You only have a certain amount of hours per year. So that's my answer. So, you know, from a best practices standpoint, what we see is about 250, but it does depend. But that's a good rule of thumb. Does that answer your question, Bob? That, that does. And I don't think <laughs> our listeners were expecting a math lesson, but um, that was my top five takeaways. And one of those is going to be, it's all about math and just rewind the podcast and listen to what you just said again. Yeah, right? <laughs> so my question for you is unrelated to that, but I think it's an interesting question if you really think about it. And that is, so we're talking about being a trusted advisor, right? So there are trusted advisors out there that work in the independent channel. They work for wirehouses, et cetera. You guys work for banks and credit unions, right? So financial institutions. There are benefits to that. That's my belief. But I'm interested to get your view. What are the benefits that you have working inside a bank or a credit union. Matt, you want to kick us off with that? Sure. So other than the obvious benefits about being affiliated with an institution being better asset flow, referrals, that sort of thing, the benefits of being a trusted advisor inside of an institution is, at least I've been told this, we are almost like unicorns. They're expecting us to launch into some sort of sales presentation about an annuity, or they're expecting us to say, you definitely need to sell this mutual fund, buy that mutual fund. So much so that my sophisticated prospects, when I start the discovery process and I start asking them a lot of questions, they say, how long have you been at this institution? Did you move here from Goldman Sachs or something? Or did you? No, 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 no. And so they're expecting almost a, a sales pitch. And when they don't get the sales pitch, they're almost impressed. Wow, I didn't realize that XYZ Bank had a wealth management program or had a financial planning arm that they offered. So to me, that's one of the biggest benefits. And then secondly, because the bank and credit union channel does have a larger share of transactional practices, it gives us the opportunity to go consult with other banks and credit unions. Go meet with other institutions and say, hey, if you are transactional, would you like to kind of transform that practice into more financial planning? Are you interested in that? If so, let's talk about how we might could do it. So that gives us a huge opportunity. So that's the two things that jump off the page at me. Cool. Interesting. Rob, I'd like to get your perspective on it. Absolutely. Uh, mine's a little shorter. Just brand. Webster Bank is a huge regional brand in Connecticut. And when someone walks in the door, I think we I don't get referrals anymore. That hasn't been going on for a few years. You guys may or may not know that the way Webster operates is that our second story reps, which I'm one of, is out of the referral process. There's other reps in the branch you get those. So I really have to focus on client referrals, but the brand makes a difference. People that are bank clients, that are bank people, feel comfortable when they're sitting with someone from the bank. And I think that's had an impact on especially growing my business until we became second story. I think that made a huge impact on bringing on clients and being able to build up a pretty nice sized book of business with assets under management. Makes sense, Dan. You, I assume, agree with that? May I have any additional thoughts? 100% agree. I really think it comes down to, to two things that are on our side, and that's loyalty to team because of the process and the onboarding process, as I mentioned a couple of times, that client experience in the brand right? That brand here in New England for us is a very, very strong thing, as Rob said. 
And these relationships that we have become extremely sticky, as I mentioned, when you have that truly holistic team approach. And we've also benefited from bringing partners with our fellow bankers into the mix, into the fold, so that the client experience is seeing one big, huge team that can manage not only the stuff that we're talking to them about, but their deposits and their lending. And we work extremely close with our banking partners to create that environment where that client knows they only have to go to one place and get all of their financial needs met by this one powerhouse team. And I believe that gives our clients that financial peace of mind that we're all striving to provide. And that's, I think, what a trusted advisor does is provide that financial peace of mind. Yeah. So I think you kind of hit it on the head right there, right? When you're working inside a financial institution, you have a lot of teammates that you can leverage. You have to gain their trust, right? But once you do that, man, there's there's some magic that can happen. I mean, you have mortgage bankers, business bankers, you know, other lending officers, private bankers, perhaps whatever. But if you can leverage them, not only is their referral flow amazing, but then you can, as you look at your client segments, you can meet with the appropriate clients with the, the power of a team. And what does that do from the client perspective? It makes them feel really important, right? They have a team of four or five people that are working for them and helping them. That creates a lot of stickiness. And what it also does among the team, the internal team, is you do that enough, it creates friendships, right? And, and increases the internal trust. And so it just becomes a naturally self-fulfilling kind of beneficial virtuous circle, right? So I think that's I think that's a huge benefit. So that said, Bob, I'm going to pass it back to you because there's you know, there are a few implications we made relative to not only working with a team but also can you leverage yourself and that implies scale. So I think that's your next question, right? Exactly. It's real simply. How do you scale this stuff? How can you scale it? And you know, there's I think there's different ways you can scale it by clients, by assets, by product mix. Rob, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Bob. For me, you just hit on all three points. I can, Dan, you know, through LPL and I'm sure through other BDs too, there's such a huge abundance of tools to help. I don't utilize them as well as I should, but I need less clients. You know, there's a lot of clients that I can unload and pass on and scale my business back that way which I think would make a big difference in bringing on new clients. I need to develop and implement just a better referral process from my clients, which I'd like to hear what Matt does if he does a lot of client referrals too, because we ask a lot, but I would say that we're okay at it. We'd like to be better, but we have this huge abundance of opportunity within our own clients that already trust us. And I need to hit that better and utilize it and bring on new clients that allow me to have less households and focus more on the households I have. Another thing I can do to scale my business, interested in what Matt has to say as well with this as an advisor, is that I don't utilize MWP and Manager Select as much as I should. Those are our, our, allow me to outsource the investment process. I still do a lot of that myself. And that is, a, that I think Scott was saying, that's eight hours. There's something that can help me get back to four hours and allow me to focus more on clients, bringing clients on. And I think that would be huge to scale it and to, to scale my business. Thanks. And going deeper with clients is absolutely one thing that I wanted to bring out in this conversation and, and also talk about the protection side of the business. We always talk about growing your assets, but about growing and protecting and adding that protection component to a lot of clients, because sometimes that's not always at the top of the list with the six core needs, but it's in there. And I can make an argument that it probably touches three or four of the six core needs. So Matt, I don't know if you have any thoughts about adding protection as a way of scaling and how you actually scale as well. Absolutely. So first of all, I'm a bad example of what Rob mentioned as far as using centrally managed. We do manage all of our own portfolios. So I'm with him on that side of the boat. I'm sure we could scale much better on that. And similar to what Dan mentioned earlier with the team, I'm sort of thinking about other situations in life where a complete team is utilized. And you think about it like in the sports environment, you know, when a kid comes out of college and gets drafted into the NFL, who meets with that family? It's not just the head coach. It's not just the owner. It's the offensive coordinator. It's the player personnel person. It's the 
director of scouting. It's the player relationship manager to tell the player where to live, what hotel to rent when they first move to town, all of these things. The larger the team sitting in front of that player, the more important that player feels. So to y'all's point about using bankers, using the people on the institution side, we do that a good bit. And a lot of times we'll do it in the same meeting. So when we go around the room, how do we scale? We go around the room and I basically let each person introduce themselves and talk about which specialty they focus on. So we're lucky enough to have a dedicated insurance rep as part of our team. He's a part-time backup admin and he's a part-time insurance person. So when he speaks, he talks about, hey, if they recommend XYZ insurance as part of this financial plan, it's my job to implement it. It's my job to go out and get quotes. It's my job to make sure the health exam happens. That's what he does. So that client knows if they have a question about, should I have a high deductible plan with today HSA? David's the person to call, not me. That's been explained on the front end. The client knows if I really want to wire money to purchase real estate, Catherine, the chief of staff, that's who I call. She handles all the money in, all the money out. I'm not going to call Matt. If I have a really advanced financial planning question, I'm going to call Jason. I have a CFP too, but he's a much better planner than I am. And I explain that on the front end. So the client feels very important with all the team around them, again, like an NFL athlete. But then they also know, oh, they explain this on the front end. There are different specialists in all of these different areas. That's how we tend to scale. However, we still tend to overlap and we struggle a bit in this. We have certain clients who will only call me for all needs. The only way I handle that, quite frankly, Robert, is if they ask me a question that they should be asking someone else, even if I know the answer, I don't give it to them. I say, you know what? Jason handles all of that for us. I'm going to transfer you to him or I'm going to have him call you. Catherine handles that area of our practice. If you don't mind, I'm going to have her handle this because if I do it, I'm going to screw it up. So I just reinforce that, that I'm not always the person that they need. That helps us scale, although it is still a bit of a struggle, to be honest. Well, yeah, of course, because the client is looking at you as the relationship person, and they're not always as comfortable talking to the insurance person. But if it's all explained up front, that makes it, you know, obviously a real clean thing. You mentioned HSAs, and I know Webster is big into HSAs, but that's, and, and you might want to comment about that, Dan, as well, and your take on what scale means to you as well. Yeah, sure. I think we've had a lot of learnings over the years on how to actually make and add efficiencies to practice. And if the answer isn't always adding to headcount, right? We've had a lot of conversations about team. I've brought it up several times and that's really, really important. But that was one of the learnings we had along the way here, especially during our second story implementation was that's not always the answer. Just building out a bigger team doesn't necessarily make it a more profitable team. And we need to find ways, as both Matt and Rob said, to add efficiencies in our book. And some of that can be adding some of the models, right? Like we alluded to the MWP or OMP and doing a little bit less of the SAM, which is the open architecture. And that's hard to do. And I can tell by both of these guys' personalities that they don't want to lose control, right? And that's a big reason why they continue to do it. They're comfortable with it, but they don't want to lose control. And that's something that I'm having a lot of conversations with our top advisors about is how do we add efficiencies? Again, it can't just be adding to the headcount. And some of it can be tweaking how we manage these portfolios. And some of it can be carrying back our book of business again. And Rob's 100% right. It's about 15 to 20% of his book that really doesn't add much value to their practice. And something needs to be done with that. He just doesn't have the time to spend with that bottom 15 to 20%. So one of the things we can do to really scale his practice even more moving forward is reposition some of those accounts, not necessarily to his junior, right? Because that's still going to create work for his team but reposition that to another maybe more junior advisor that's covering the banking center now that's getting the referrals from the banking center. And that's a win-win for everybody because that junior advisor has more time to spend with that client. They get a better client experience and it bolsters their book. And now I have two advisors that can be more successful as a result of one thing that we do. So there's a lot of things we can do. Those were just kind of two of them, but it's a very important topic. Yeah, Matt, I knew you wanted to add something. Yes, just to Dan's point, and first of all, I appreciate Rob's honesty earlier when he said it's difficult to give away a client. Even though I'm both a manager and an advisor, I would consider myself an advisor first. I will always see it that way. Uh, So I relate to that. It is very difficult, not only from the revenue perspective, but just also, I remember the first time I met that client. I remember when I first got them to yes. I remember when they had their children or when they children attended college or whatever, just to hand them off is difficult. What resonated with me to Dan's point about the bottom 10 to 15% is not additive to our practice. What resonated with me is, yes, it's difficult to give away revenue and every dollar counts and I'm competitive. 
Ameriprise has an advisor business development group, and they looked at my personal book, not our whole practice, just my personal book. And the head of ABDG said, if you would give away this amount of clients, I think you could double your business with what's remaining. He goes, I can almost guarantee this. Then he was speaking my language because then it wasn't giving away the client to save work or to help the junior advisor or even to do the right thing for the client, although it is, to Dan's point, the right thing for the client because that junior advisor can spend more time. No, it was selfishly, if I'm able to offload these households, can I increase business 20, 30, 40% with what's left, my top people? So all it took was someone speaking my language instead of saying, hey, listen, you know, you can't service 450 households. Why don't you give away 200 to Julie down the hall? They framed it as, I think you could double your business by doing this, you know, one step back, three step forward type of thing. And at the end of the day, to Dan's point, and I feel guilty about this one when I don't do it, I do think it is the right thing for the client. They deserve just as much service if they have 150,000 as they do if they have 5 million. I think you've just brought to light what I think we're going to do a future podcast on entitled segmenting your book away for everyone's benefit. <laughs> I think that could be something in the future, but I think we've run out of questions and we don't usually do this, but I'm going to pass the lightning round to you, Scott, if you'd like, okay. to. Right. and I'll, I'll give you the bell. You tell me when you're ready, but I think we've exhausted our questions and our panelists. Yeah, no, this is a good discussion. And I'll just make a few points for our listeners. One is MWP has been referenced a couple of times. That's Managed Wealth Portfolio, which is an advisory offering from LPL, just for clarity's sake. Also, there are two parts of scaling, right? One part is what we've been talking about. The other part's been referenced, and that is, are there correct ways to add headcount, whether that be a good assistant, junior advisor, et cetera, that enable you to scale your business, right? I think that's a separate topic relative to scale. But if you do it right, that will work too and help you scale your business and help you manage more clients. Maybe it's more than 250. So I think that's a big part of it. So the other just general observation, because Bob, you referenced protection needs, which you're really good at making sure we don't forget that. And that made me think of, all right, so we should add to our definition of a trusted advisor. And the addition would be, this is my opinion, that if you are a trusted advisor, you're helping Generally speaking, your clients do two things. You're helping them grow their assets and protect their assets. And you have to do both of those or you're only doing half of your job, right? So I think that's important. And I've said this before, there are a lot of advisors that don't get involved in the protection discussion because they're not comfortable with it. They don't make enough money off of insurance product, whatever it is, but that's missing the point. The point is what it does for the relationship and how it enables you to be the trusted advisor. So those clients give you the rest of their assets to manage. Right. So I'm Matt, I see you nodding your head at everything. So you probably agree, I'm guessing. Yes, I had a personal experience with this, and I'll be brief just so I don't overtalk the whole podcast. But my father recently passed away, and I just had a meeting with probate two days ago. As you can imagine, he named me as the personal representative. We opened and closed probate on the same day. Wow. That was the exact line. She said, everything's titled correctly. It's either POD or TOD. Everything's in the right place. He was not over the lifetime exclusion. So there was no estate planning situation. But again, that was a good testimonial to us. My hope would be if we do our jobs correctly, all of our clients should come somewhere close to opening and closing probate on the same day. That just happened Monday. So anyway, that's protecting the asset in my opinion. Absolutely. Having, having yeah. gone through a similar situation, I wish I could have said the same. <laughs> <laughs> I had a witness. I had a witness right next to me that did not make that story up. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 crazy. So, all right. Well, I think it's time to wrap it up with our lightning round question, right? And Bob, thanks for passing it to me. So, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Oh, the bell. That signifies the lightning round question. So the lightning round question is typically more on a personal level. It's nothing to do with business and just more fun. So this month it is, what is the last book that you've read? Dan, you want to start us? Sure. It's actually a blast from the past because it's a book I read, I think, 15, maybe even 20 years ago. But it was a great one. And I found it last week. So I decided, you know what? It's a relatively short read. Let's bang it out over the weekend. And I did. And it was Get More Referrals Now by Bill Cates. Uh, he's actually a, a gentleman, uh, an author, obviously, that I had done some, again, 15 to 20 years ago, I had done some group calls with him with the team that I was working with at that time. So a great book, great short read, definitely highly recommend it as something that you can get through in easily a weekend or even a day, quite honestly, if you're that dedicated. 
Get more referrals now. And you said Bill Cates? Cates with a C. Okay. Not the guy that started Microsoft. I've heard of him. (laughs) All right. Rob, how about you? I'm embarrassed to say that I listen to my books now. I don't read them. Fair game. I am listening to two books in the car now and finishing up. One is Jack Carr. The name of the book is True Believer. And that is from the series with The Terminal List. That was just on Amazon Prime. So I went back and I downloaded one of the books. And the other is, I only listened to a little bit at a time. I finally just finished. It's the Option Volatility and Pricing by Sheldon Natenberg. Boring, but an interesting subject for me. And it took me a little while, but Jack Carr, True Believer, much better than Option Volatility and Pricing. Yeah, that second one sounds like a very light read, Rob. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, very light. Very Come on, light. step up your game. <laughs> Matt, how about you? So, Rob said he was embarrassed to admit that he listens to his books. I'm embarrassed to admit that I really don't like to read books. Um, <laughs> so, I, I figure if the book's good enough, they're going to make a movie out of it and then I'll watch it. But the last, the last book that I read, to be honest, is called A Father's Legacy. I was writing the eulogy for my father's funeral. And that's a book I asked him to answer a bunch of questions for me about 10 years ago. And it was asking him about childhood experiences, advice he would give to me, to his grandchildren, biggest fears in life, things he would redo. So it's just a book that essentially asks a bunch of open-ended questions. And then my father had handwritten his answer in it. So I reread that in preparation for the eulogy. So that's, I'll cheat a little. That's the last book that I read. Uh, It's called A Father's Legacy. Well, well, that's cool because that's a you know that's a personal story, right? That's a personal touch to yeah. it. So uh, good for you. How about you, Bob? Ron Darling, the complete game. I'm an obsessive Met fan. I was at the Met Yankee game last night. You all know how that turned out. And also, I love mysteries. And Robert Parker has been dead for ten years. Yes, Mike. But Mike Lupica is writing under his name. So uh, nothing at all to do with business. I am totally a leisure get away from financial services reader. Bob. What is his main character that Robert Parker used to have? Oh, um, there was a couple. There was um, Spencer. Spencer, that's it. Yeah, that's and, you it. Know, Spencer. Spencer for Hire was a movie. There's all yep, Spencer for Hire oh, was also a movie yeah. with Marky Mark, right? And that's what that's how I got into Parker. And seriously, he's been dead for. He's got like five ghostwriters for different series. <laughs> so that book stars Marky Mark as a movie. So I actually might read that one on the screen. <laughs> on the screen, yeah. <laughs> And the other one, it's I'm just watching baseball. So, you know, it is what it is. So I decided to read, <laughs> you know, all this talk about crypto and that, you know, crypto's crashed. So everybody is talking about crypto. And I was pretty convinced that although people talk about it, they don't really understand it, especially the underlying technology, blockchain, right? People use the term blockchain like they know what they're talking about. It's my contention. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> or maybe 10% of the people do. So I decided to pick up The Truth About Crypto, which talks about crypto and blockchain by Rick Edelman. It's actually pretty good. So I haven't finished it and I don't intend to. I'm just reading the chapters that I'm most interested in and I've learned a lot. So now I think I understand to a degree all this stuff that's going on and how blockchain can very significantly affect business in many ways. Nothing to do with Bitcoin. But, you know, smart contracts and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's pretty fascinating. But it's, you know, again, it's not a light read, but Rick does a good job in simplifying it so I can understand it because that's what I need. (laughs) So that's mine. All right. Well, I think uh, this is a wrap, Bob. Why don't I uh, give it to you for some closing comments and then we'll all say goodbye. Sure thing. Well, all of our listeners know I like to close with our top takeaways. I have five today. I have five top takeaways. One thing is you should talk all things money. I wonder who said that. Okay, being obsessed with financial planning. Everybody said that. Discovery, discovery, discovery. It all starts here. I know Scott said that. (laughs) Take your clients out to lunch. I think that was Rob that said that and asked Dan for some more money to do it. And then finally, it's all about math. And if you don't know what that means, rewind the podcast and listen to Scott's math lesson from before. So. That works. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to our panel once again, Rob, Matt, Dan, and it's been a lot of fun. Thanks to Jeff Hardney and Sefer from the BISA. Thanks to Ameriprise for continuing their sponsorship of this podcast. And don't forget our two other podcasts, Untangling FinTech and Industry Leadership and Success. And you can get these wherever you get your other podcasts and your music too. So it's time to say goodbye. Hi, Scott. 
Goodbye, Scott. <laughs> all right, thanks. everybody. Thank you, guys. Bye, and, uh, Bye, thank Bye, you. Thanks. Yep, thank you. And thanks thank to you. all our listeners for listening. Thanks, Bye. guys. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. Be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.